Bibles. Let's try that. Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47 will be in this morning. As, we, as you turn there, let's uh, bow with me, join me in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we turn to open your word now, I pray that our hearts are ready to receive your truth, that you give us wisdom and understanding as we seek to interpret the words that are before us in this text. Allow us to apply it to our lives that when we leave this place, we be changed individuals because we've encountered you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's, it's difficult to know how to respond to our enemies. And it, people that we encounter, and, and may, perhaps every day we encounter them. People that would like nothing more than to see us come to ruin. And these could be people in your workplace, people that you see on a daily basis. These could be former friends that have just all of a sudden turned on you for no apparent reason. Maybe it's people that would seek to destroy you through gossip or slander or whatever. Or they could even be people that you've never met before. People that you just have a brief altercation with that then go on and you don't see them again. Something like a traffic accident. It happens and then there's an altercation and then they're gone. It's difficult to know how to respond to these people that we encounter on a somewhat regular basis. Because everything that's within us tells us you have to fight and win. Everything that's within us just tells us that. Maybe it's just me, but it tells us you got to fight and you got to win. History tells us of the Scythians, uh, people that were nomadic people. They roamed to and fro. They usually ruled the area that is now known as, the Ukraine, or as Ukraine and southern Russia. And from roughly about the 500s B.C. to about the 200s B.C., the Scythians roamed hitherto and fro. They were nomadic people. They didn't have a constant homeland, but in large part, they governed this area. In the 6th century, Persian king by the name of Darius, you know him because he came into Babylon and defeated the Babylonians and freed the Jews to go back to their homeland. That's the same Darius. These Pers the Persians came in under the leadership of Darius and they were trying to engage the Scythians in battle. They were trying to catch them. But the problem was that the Scythians were nomadic people and they just kept retreating. They just kept fleeing. And so Darius is really confused because when you go to battle, somebody comes to the other side and they fight you. That's what you do in battle. And so Darius is really confused and so he sends a note to the king of the Scythians. And he says, if you think you are stronger, then stand and fight. But if you are weaker, submit to me. Pick one. The Scythian king responded, we Scythians have neither towns nor cultivated lands which might induce us through fear of them being taken or ravaged to be in a hurry to fight with you. In other words, we don't have anything to fight for. For what reason would, you, would we possibly stand up to you? And further, what can you take from us that would cause us to want to fight? This land is not our home. If you take it, we'll go somewhere else. This king points to a remarkable truth that seems paradoxical 
when you think about it. An enemy that refuses to fight is very difficult to defeat. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last of Jesus' antithesis, which are in Matthew chapter 5. We've seen five of them thus far. The antitheses are the ones where he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. There's, there's six of those total. We've gone through five of them already. And this morning, as we study through the book of Matthew, we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5 in this last antithesis. We look at the sixth final critique where Jesus is looking at the traditional law of the Pharisees that's being taught in his day, and he's critiquing it. And the one we're in today, what we're talking about this morning, is similar to the one that we looked at last time about retaliation. Jesus is here, he's going to go a step further, and he's going to challenge us as Christians to not only refuse to retaliate, but to refuse to treat anyone like an enemy. Refusing to engage in conflict with those that would seek to destroy us. That being said, let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sins reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So Jesus gives us this basic command. If we were to boil it all down, he gives us this basic command. Love your enemies. Right? That, that's the basic command that he gives. Love your enemies. And then the following paragraph unfolds what he sees as ways in which we express that love. And at least two ways that we express that love. And those two ways are going to form our two points for our sermon this morning. We are to love our enemies. And here are the two ways that Jesus says we are to respond in love toward our enemies. First, Christians respond to our enemies in prayer. Christians respond to our enemies in prayer. Look at what he says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, there's some question floating around in Jesus' day that I'm sure you're all aware of that's asking, who exactly is my neighbor? That's the question of the day. Who, who is my neighbor? Probably most of you are going to recall the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus answers that question exactly. And how does he answer it? Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? How does he answer it? Who is my neighbor? It's anyone who is in need of help. That's how he answers it. Anyone who is in need of help. And Jesus says here in our, our passage that love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy is a common teaching of the day. Now, love your neighbor is clearly and plainly spelled out in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 19.18, Jesus is going to quote uh, several times throughout the Gospels. He's going, to, he's going to quote that as the second most important commandment in the law. Right behind Deuteronomy 6 of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Go, love God with all your, your being. However, the second part of that 
hate your enemy, which is part of the common teaching, is nowhere to be found in the law. It's not there. But somehow this has become part of the vernacular as they've struggled to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And the question in that day had most certainly been answered already by most of the prominent teachers. And when they answer the question, who is my neighbor? The answer is, whoever is not my enemy. That's how they've answered it. Whoever is not my enemy. Well, this affords them the right if that's how they answer that question, who is my neighbor, whoever is not my if that's how they're going to answer it, then it affords them the right to pick anyone they want and make them an enemy. Now, probably for a first century Jew, this means anyone that's not a Jew. So a Gentile and a Samaritan are probably going to be foremost on the list of enemies. Now, you do the math. If you're a Jew in the first century... And you make anyone who's a Gentile or a Samaritan an enemy. Who's left? No one. All right? No one's left. Everyone essentially is, is an enemy. So, if, if, if you're a Jew and your neighbor is other Jews, only your brothers, everyone else can be an enemy. You don't actually have to love anyone unless they're a part of your faith family. And not only that, but we saw last time we were looking at, at Matthew uh, a couple of weeks ago that if they do something against you, even your people in your own family, even people in your own faith family, you can retaliate eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? So sometimes not even them do you have to love. Not even they are your neighbor. Well, Jesus is, is correcting this prevalent teaching of the day with saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let's do the math again. I realize this is a lot of math, and it's early in the morning. It's early any time to do math, okay? <laughs> and here's a guy who majored in religion, all right? So I'm not a math magician, okay? Uh, I don't do that. But if we're doing the math, and Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, who's left? No one. The only thing that you're left to conclude is that we're not allowed to have enemies. In fact, he couldn't say it plainer. Christians aren't afforded the luxury of having enemies. Now, that's not to say that there won't be people who view you as their enemy. That's not to say that they won't. In fact, the, the people that Jesus says are your enemies in this passage are people who view you as their enemies. But it is to say that there should be no one who you view as your enemy. Amen. You don't treat anyone as though they're an enemy. That's essentially what he's saying. Well, how do we respond? He says, loving them and, and the way that seems to be manifest first in loving them is prayer for them. That's what he says, prayer. Now, why prayer? Why is prayer the first, why do we pray for them? John Stott answers the question like this. If intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. 
We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. John Chrysostom, an early church father, saw this responsibility to pray for our enemies as uh, the chief, the very highest summit of self-control. That's what he called it, the highest summit of self-control. And he looked at these two passages that we've looked at in two weeks, uh, the passage going all the way back to verse 38 and all the way through our passage now. And, he, and Chrysostom saw nine progressive steps with intercession as the topmost virtue, the topmost step. First, he said, we are not to take any evil initiative of ourselves. Second, we are not to avenge another's evil. Third, we are to be quiet. Fourth, to suffer wrongfully. Fifth, we are to surrender to the evildoer more than he demands. Sixth, we are not to hate him. Seventh, we are to love him. Eighth, we are to do him good. And as our ninth duty, we are to entreat God himself on his behalf. So going all the way back to verse 38, this is what Jesus is telling us, is righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what, righteous, here's what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, living in the midst of a world with people that are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what it would mean to actually be righteous. And you see it right there, nine consecutive steps. With prayer for your enemies and those who persecute you as the most difficult. Jesus is ratcheting up the expectations of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And especially when it comes to how we respond to our enemies. Now, it's difficult to not respond to an enemy. Even just verbally, it's difficult to not respond to. That could be someone that picked on you in grade school or someone all the way up to like murdering a family member of yours or even someone that just crashed into your car and told the insurance company that it was your fault. It could be anybody. It's difficult not to lash out in anger, but how much more difficult is it to actually pray that the Lord blesses that person? I don't mean bless like we mean it in the South. God bless his heart. Which really means you're an idiot, and in my mind, I'm beating your car with a baseball bat. Right? That's what, bless your heart. Right? That's what that means. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually going before the Lord and praying that this person has everything that they need, that the Lord meets all of their needs. That's what it means to pray for those who persecute you, to bless them. Christians, second, Christians respond to our enemies in deed. Christians respond to our enemies in, in action. Look at what he says in verse 45 and following. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes, uh, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So 
If you look at verse 45, Jesus surely doesn't mean here that in order to be saved, in order to be sons of your Father, that you have to pray for those who persecute you. That looks like what he's saying on the surface, but surely he doesn't mean that because think about what that would mean if that's what Jesus was saying. In order to be saved, you have to pray for those who persecute you. That's what it means to be saved is that you're, you're doing this. If, if that was the case, let's think about our own life for just a second. Which of us loves even our closest neighbors? Which of us loves our closest neighbors perfectly? And when I'm thinking about our perfect neighbors, or our closest neighbors, I'm thinking about our spouse, maybe, our kids, our, our family members. In other words, people that love us back. Which of us is doing that perfectly? I would say none of us. But Jesus isn't talking here about our closest neighbors. He's talking about our enemies. If we aren't loving the ones who actually love us back perfectly, what are the odds we're actually loving our enemies perfectly, much less prayed for them? Now, if he's saying that you have to pray for your enemies in order to be sons of the Father, then all of us would be disqualified. Because unfortunately, if we're sons by any other means than his grace we're up a creek well then what does jesus mean here when he says so that you may be sons of your father in heaven see the role of the son is to image the father he is to represent the father he is the future heir to the father's kingdom so therefore if the son comes in the name of the Father, what the Son does is reflective of the Father's own will and desire. So the Son's actions are the Father's actions. The Son's commands are the Father's commands. Jesus is very clear here that to be a Son, to represent perfectly your Father who is in heaven, you will be the kind of person that loves your enemies and prays for those who persecute you. And the reason is, as he goes on to say, is this is the way that God deals with people. To both the evil and the good, the just and the unjust, the Christian and the unchristian, and the non-Christian, to the believer and the unbeliever, he gives he gives good gifts. That's how he treats people. They're God's gracious gifts that he freely gives even to the most vile and reprobate people in our society. God is this kind of a God. He gives good gifts of grace to all regardless of their position, regardless of how evil or how vile they are. So then, if God, who is holy and just, can give rain and sunshine even to the vilest of people. How do you, what right do you have as a son to do evil to your neighbor? God who knows the heart of that evil person and has every right to judge him and will one day still gives a good gift to this person. So then you, who don't know this person's heart, have no right to treat another with hostility. You have no right to an enemy. Jesus is entreating us to fulfill our role as sons of God by loving our enemies and praying for them.
He's not telling you, this is how you become a son of the Father. He actually says, your Father. He assumes that you already are sons. When I was a kid, my dad used to uh, call me to come outside and help him. Usually it was on the weekend, and typically it was in the summer. So I grew up in Texas, so it was 150,000 degrees. All right? You don't have to preach about hell in Texas. They already know. They understand, okay? It's, it's just an easy correlation. And so he would call me to come outside and help him. And I was a kid, and so I'd go out there. And typically, anytime he called me out to help him, it was just to hold stuff. That's all he wanted me to do. You got two hands, and I've only got two hands, but together we've got four. So here, you're going to hold things. And so I would just stand there holding a post in the blazing hot, right, in Texas. And so like a kid does, I would roll my eyes I would sigh, I would find every reason to drop the pole, to slough off, (laughs) to not do what I was supposed to do, and I would make it very known that I did not want to be out there. And so he would tell me, and I've got this, this saying of his just rattling around my head constantly. He would look at me and he would say, grow up and be a man, boy. That was his, that was his go-to phrase every time. Grow up and be a man, boy. Now, Regardless of what my dad told me out there, I am a male, and given enough time, I'm going to physiologically grow up and be a man. Technically, that is what my destiny is, regardless of what my dad says. But of course, when my dad tells me that phrase, grow up and be a man, we all know what he's talking about. I could be 30, and he could still say the same thing to me. Grow up and be a man. Because he's not telling me what is physiologically true, what's going to happen. He's telling me to fulfill the role of what it means to be a man. To take care of responsibility. To do the things that need to be done. To buckle down and do the hard work, even if it is difficult to endure. For lack of a better way of saying it, suck it up. Okay? Right? That's what he's saying. Similarly, Jesus is telling us the way that you fulfill your role of son. And that includes the ladies in here. He's not making a gender statement. He's saying you're included as a son of God. You're an heir to the kingdom. It's a title. In order to fulfill your role of son in God's family is that you mimic the actions of the father. That's what it means to be a son. That's what it means to fulfill your role as son, is that you mimic the actions of your father. He's making the point that as a child of God, you're representing him, and the manner in which you represent him reflects on him and tells the rest of the world what kind of God you serve. It tells the rest of the world who he is. This is why Jesus says just a few verses ago, Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're representing Him on His behalf. You are a son. And you're to fulfill that role as a son by representing Him. It would seem as though to mimic the actions of the Heavenly Father especially in regards to our enemies is that we need to serve them in a similar way that God does. 
And what does he say here? He says he makes the sun rise and sends the rain on, ju- on the just and the unjust. Saved and damned alike. God is benevolent even towards his enemies. He still gives common grace. That's what we call that, common grace. It's the rain for your yard and the sunshine for your tomatoes. This is the kind of grace that's common that God gives to everyone. It's common grace. Jesus seems to be using God's common grace as a reason for us to give grace to our enemies. So when you get to the end of Jesus' teaching, the basic conclusion that you're to walk away with, that we have to draw, is that as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we aren't allowed to have any enemies. There's no other option. We're not afforded the luxury of enemies. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are not afforded the luxuries of enemies. We talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago when it comes to retaliation against other people that have done you wrong. God tells us, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We're not even left with vengeance. We're not able to exercise vengeance. We give that up too in following Christ. That's his. He can take care of it. Essentially, it removes our right to retaliate against people that have treated us unfairly. In our text this morning, is just an extension of that same teaching that we don't have the luxury of having enemies. Even though someone may see us as their enemy, we cannot see them as our enemy. There's a fundamental difference between you and God. Namely, that we cannot see the heart of a man. And God can. So when it comes to having enemies, our only justification is strictly outward. The way they look, the way they appear, the things they say, how they smell, how rude they are, what they do to us, how they make us feel. Everything is outward. God's justification for having enemies is the heart of a man. He looks into the heart and he sees his motivations. So there'll never be a point in this life where we're ever given permission to do anything to anyone but extend to them grace and love. He says there as an example in verse 46 and 47, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than than, than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. In other words, it's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to love those who, 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 don't have, who you don't have a beef with. Even tax collectors do that. You could substitute for tax collectors, you could substitute the most reprobate person in society or the most reprobate people group in society. That's his point in using tax collectors there. Not only do we have in tax collectors someone who betrayed their own people to work for the government, but now they're actually using the sword of the government to cheat people, their own people, out of their money. These are the lowest, vilest people, and that's the reason he uses them as an example. Even they do that. You're not doing anything more than the most reprobate in society do that. But it's actually being a representative of the true God that we worship to be gracious and loving and kind to those that want to even see you perish. 
But now the question is why? 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 Why is that? Why, why does he care so much? I, I mean, let's say somebody walks in that I don't really care for, and I would just rather ignore them. Why does, he, why does he say this about greeting? Why do I have to go up to them and greet them the way a brother does instead of the way a Gentile does, just moving to the other side of the room and sitting over here rather than sitting over there? Does he really care if I send their call to voicemail? Why? Why is that such a big deal? Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6 to 11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now there are several passages that I could probably say this about in the New Testament in particular, but I think Romans 5.10 encapsulates as, as near as any one verse in the New Testament, the very central, center, center of the gospel message. In fact, if you had five seconds to tell someone the gospel, you probably couldn't do much better than quoting Romans 5.10. Paul's point in this passage is that anyone that calls themselves a Christian was once an enemy of God. We were enemies of God for good reason. Remember Paul tells us earlier in Romans, you can probably quote Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what this results in is not that we are a friend of God, but that we are an enemy of God. One's marked for God's wrath. He calls us in Ephesians by nature children of wrath because of our sin against God. But what did God do for you? Think about this for just a second. What did God do for you? His enemy. Well, He sent Christ, who was not His enemy, and not even merely His friend, but His Son. And He sent Him to the cross. One in the same essence as the Father. He sent Him who was truly God, truly man. God, sent, God the Father sent God the Son to the cross so that He could empty the wrath that He had toward you and me on Christ instead. So Jesus, on the cross, faces an eternity of hell in about six hours. That's what God did for His enemy. Did Christ pray for His enemies? Yeah. As they were mocking him, as they nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Brothers and sisters, do you understand why this is tremendously important for us? Not only is it the gospel in a nutshell, but it tells us something about the way we interact with people that see themselves as our enemies. If you want to be a living, breathing testimony to the gospel, 
So that as Jesus says, people may see your life and glorify your Father in heaven. You cannot afford to have any enemies. When we lash out in anger or perhaps even bitterness in our heart, or maybe even we just simply see someone from a distance and we go to the other side, particularly those people that are most difficult to love, we're no longer demonstrating the heart of the gospel message that we are supposed to live by. We're no longer telling people the gospel message, even with our life. We're certainly not demonstrating it because that's not the gospel. We're no longer acting as sons of the Father because the heart of the gospel message is that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, I want to ask you to dig deep into your hearts. And I want you to think about whether or not you actually have any enemies. And I want to give you just a few examples. Just off the top of my head, just some examples. We'll start with some easy ones. How about that guy in traffic? You know the guy I'm talking about. Lane's coming to a close. You're waiting dutifully like a good citizen in line as the traffic inches up. But not this guy. No, no. He zooms up as far as he possibly can to get to the last. Some of you are those people. I can tell. I can tell by the way your spouse is looking at you. You are those people. You're waiting dutifully in line. He zips up there. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but I know what goes on in my mind. Not today, pal. Justice will prevail today. So what do you do? You goose the gas pedal and you stick your front bumper as close to the car behind you or in front of you as you possibly can. And then if you do that and you manage to shut him out, if you watch in your rearview mirror, you'll notice that the cars behind you do the same thing. They get up next to you as close as they possibly can, and you're like this little band of soldiers that's just making your way through traffic as you're shutting out the guy that's trying to cheat. Not today, cheater. Justice has prevailed. Now, I know that's a simple illustration. I know it's a simple illustration, and I know it's humorous because it seems harmless. I'm inside a car. No one can see me except my wife who's elbowing me. Stop it. But it comes from the same place. Doesn't it? I feel like I'm being cheated out of something. I waited. He didn't wait. I waited. I'm going to make him wait. It comes from the same place. What about the person that's competing with you for a better position, for a pay raise, for a job promotion? Now they get that job promotion and they're your boss. Now you don't like them very much anyway to begin with, but now that they're your boss, you roll your eyes. You think, I really deserve that. I would have been much better at that position than they are. comes from the same place. The neighbor that's constantly blaring music or if you're in an apartment and can't seem to walk lightly? I mean, do they realize how loud their footsteps are? They have wild parties at all hours of the night. You can't get any sleep. You've told them four times and they still don't seem to listen. 
about the parent that has that snarky comment about the way you raise your kids? Right? They're always better than you at everything. You think that's bad? Well, you should. This is what I did. Every problem you've got, they've got a solution. What about somebody, your brother or sister, that doesn't share your theological position on everything? How do you feel about them? Sometimes that could be people that maybe are Buddhist. We tend to extend more grace to them because we want to see them come to know Christ. But what about your brother or sister? So let's get very practical. How do I do this? How is it that I can actually do this? How can I go through life and not have any enemies? That's not to mention even your spouse sitting next to you and the fights that you have with them or your best friend. How is it possible that I can respond in love toward the person that's being mean or selfish? How is it that I can always do that? Here's the secret. I'm going to tell it to you. I'm going to blow the lid off this whole thing, and we're all going to have the secret that we can just put in our pocket, and we'll always be better for it. Okay? Are you ready for the secret? Here it is. Here it is. Constantly remind yourself of the gospel. That's no secret. We all knew that, I think, was coming. That's the secret, though. That's what it is. That's what we're told in the Scriptures, is to constantly remind ourselves of the Gospel. And here's what it sounds like. If you were to put that on the forefront of your mind, it would say, I was an enemy of God and He forgave me. I was deserving of hell and He killed His Son so that He didn't have to kill me. I I spat in His face with my sin and He took all the wrath that He had towards me and He put it on Jesus instead. God responded toward me, His enemy, in love instead of wrath. So to respond to this person in wrath would mean that his sin against me is greater than my sin against God. That's what it sounds like to put the gospel on the forefront of your mind, constantly. John MacArthur says it like this, when a Christian fails to forgive someone else, he sets himself up as a higher judge than God and even calls into question the reality of his faith. See, the the bottom line of all of this is that the reason that we're tempted not to do this, the reason that I would rather just not remind myself of the gospel is because I don't really think that my sin against God is that bad. That's the truth of it. I don't really think that my sin against God is that bad. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the person next to me's sin against God is heinous. But I'm willing to excuse some of my sins. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. And if we're really truthful, if our hearts were opened up, what we would find in there is that we can quickly add up all the, all the ways in which God is lucky to have us. Honestly, have you seen us? We're pretty good. I mean, we're not nearly as reprobate as that guy over there. He's lucky to have us. In fact, I don't know what God would do if he didn't. Folks, God did not save us because we are better than the rest. He saved us in spite of the fact that we're the same as everybody else. That's the reality of what we're looking at here. It's strictly by his grace. 
Now, if you're fortunate in this lifetime, God will show you this. In the starkest of terms, He will show you exactly how sinful you really are. And it's in those moments where you're very close to losing everything. Or maybe you've gone to the next step where you have lost it all. Everything that you've cared about. And it was your sin that brought it to bear. And it's at that moment where you begin to see a lot of the things. Your selfishness, how destructive your sin is. You'll get that image of sin that is of utter destruction. Where everything that I did tore my family apart. I lost everything that I have. And it was all because of of me. It was all because of the choices that I make. And it's at that moment that you'll see much more clearly the radical forgiveness that's there on the cross. Now look at that person that seeks to do you harm. They haven't seen that. They don't know. They don't understand what Christ is calling us to. The kind of love He is calling us to have for people around us. They don't understand that. Maybe they should understand that. But they don't understand that. But you know something? They're never going to understand that. If we respond in bitterness and anger and hostility and gossip and fighting and revenge, that's not going to help them know it. They need to see it modeled in your actions. And it's at that moment that you become an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. When you are actually sons of the Father and you are responding to them the way God responds to wicked people. And you respond... That way, not because they deserve it, but precisely because they don't deserve it. Exactly. They don't. That they may see your good works and glorify your God and Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Gratitude does not even begin to describe what we feel as a result of the fact that even though we were your enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. Lord, the reality of that is something that we will spend the rest of our lives contemplating and never fully understand why you did that. except because of your grace and your mercy and your love. You could have killed us. But you didn't. You saved us instead. And we cannot be grateful enough for it. Father, may we respond to our enemies with the same kind of sacrificial love. It's hard. And there are people that do vile and nasty 
and wicked things, and it's difficult. And we need help. Father, you did not just save us. You gave us help. Pray that we would trust in your goodness and know that even in the case where someone sees our good works and refuses to glorify you, that you will have vengeance, that justice will be done, and that we can trust that you are good, and you're going to see that through to the end, and that no one, no one will escape. Father, allow us the grace to trust you. To know that even when bad things happen, nothing escapes your notice. In Jesus' name, amen.